Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. In fact, the final Political Rewind of the month of January, which flew by for me, as I suspect it did for a lot of people out there. Um, Lots to talk about on the show today. Let me get right to introducing the panel. It's Monday, which means my partner on the show is Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, longtime observer of politics in the state of Georgia. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing great. Survived the weekend blizzard, so we're, 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 all, we're all doing fine. Did you have uh, actual bad weather other than the cold weather up there your way in Cobb? We had maybe a full quarter inch of snow. Uh, it, oh. was, it was terrible. Ooh. It was terrible. Paralyzed. Paralyzed. <laughs> well, I'm very glad you got over the trauma of that and are with us uh, today. We're uh, joined by a great panel of uh, university professors, too. Amy Steigerwald is with us. She's a professor of political science at Georgia State University, as you know. And um, it's great to have you on the show when we're going to talk about Stephen Breyer and the battle for confirming uh, his uh, successor. Uh, because, Amy, you have an expertise in looking at how federal judges are chosen. You wrote a book called Battle Over the Bench, which uh, looked at the process and lower federal courts, right? I did. That was actually my, my first book. And so uh, this is this is like old home week to get to discuss judicial confirmations. Okay, well, thank you for being here. Fred Smith is with us. He's a professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, how are you today? I'm great. It's always a pleasure to be here. We should also say that you were a cl- uh, Supreme Court clerk. So I, it, I didn't even, I shouldn't uh, ask this on the air, but I will. To what extent did you have exposure to Stephen Breyer? Uh, it was limited to a lunch and you know, occasional um, hallway interactions and, uh, and, a, and a little birthday uh, party in chambers <laughs> for one of his clerks. <laughs> Well, uh, but in, but in fact, you did have some, you know, there are an awful lot of people who uh, really, really think he was one of the great justices. And the fact that you had an opportunity at least to see him in action is uh, pretty interesting, I think. Thanks for being here today, Fred. It's a pleasure. Um, Audrey Haynes joins us, political science professor at the University of Georgia, and also the creator and um, overseer of the applied politics program at UGA, which uh, recruits and trains students who want to get involved in a career in politics. Amy, I uh, read on your Facebook page all the time about students you're placing in various political jobs in Washington and Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, well, yes. And you know what? We don't have enough. There's so much activity going on right now that, I mean, the call for students to work as interns or to be hired in actual positions is very great right now. So we're very happy that we have a lot of students who have this training because there's certainly a need, particularly in the state of Georgia right now, with our very competitive elections. 
Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for being here. I do want to talk about Stephen Breyer's legacy and about uh, uh, President Biden uh, and his what he's going to face as he tries to confirm a new justice. But but I think there are a couple of stories we should take on first. Jim Galloway. One of them is we've now learned, <clears throat> excuse me, that Greg and Travis McMichael, not Roddy Bryant, but the other two, uh, who've been uh, convicted of the murder of Ahmad Arbery and are uh, uh, going to serve the rest of their lives, those two in prison, they've now reached a plea deal. The feds had brought hate crimes charges against them, federal hate crimes charges, um, and uh, instead of moving forward with the trial, they've uh, apparently reached a plea bargain arrangement in which the trial will be avoided as we do the show live on Monday morning, we know they're expected to be in court at 10 o'clock when we'll get more information about the plea deal. But the Arbery family, his mother and father, uh, consider this a betrayal. Uh, they've said they were adamant that a trial should go forward to prove that their son was murdered by racial, racial hatred. Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the, the father and son, I think— uh, uh, agreed to a 30-year uh, sentence on the federal side. Uh, it, 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 these, uh, we have law school graduates on the panel here who can tell me if a judge still needs to approve that. I would assume that that's, that's, that's going to be the case. Uh, but it's, it's clearly, I mean, uh, the, the main motivation <clears throat> appears to be that they'd, they'd rather do uh, serve out their life sentences um, in a in a federal institution uh, rather than a state institution, and uh, I suppose there's in, in, as far as accommodation, you know, it's a, a federal institution might be a, a bit safer. We've all read about all the problems and all the violence in in, in Georgia state prisons, uh, but I that's that that's but we do miss with, with if this guilty plea is accepted, what we will miss is is testimony on. Uh, on uh, on exactly what motivated them to, uh, to 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 murder this man, and we, we there's been there's already been just son of glints of 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 testimony or of 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 of, uh, of, uh, of comments made by by the younger McMichael uh, right after he right after he, he shot Ar- Arbery, but that's different from having it on the stand, uh, somebody actually giving that kind of testimony. Yeah, Fred, um, we should remind our listeners that the prosecutor in the murder trial uh, avoided uh, using race and, and the notion of it being a hate crime in her prosecution. She felt the evidence just on the surface that they had attacked him without provocation was uh, the most important thing to prove to the jury. Um, and she brought in very little evidence that involved uh, racial animus. Um, so it's understandable why the Arbories would be upset because they feel it's terribly important to prove that Travis and, and Greg McMichael, at the very least, uh, had, a, had a real uh, bigotry against black people. And that's one of the reasons they shot and killed him. Sure. Right. So at the time of the murder, Georgia didn't have a hate crimes law in the books yet. Right. This is this set of events inspired Georgia's hate crime law. Uh, And so it was a murder trial uh, in which racial animus is not one of the elements that the prosecution needed to demonstrate. Um, The federal uh, proceeding is under a federal uh, hate crime law, the James Byrd Act. 
um, which uh, explicitly is about the selection of a victim on the basis of uh, his or her race. Um, and therefore, this trial, uh, this federal trial um, would have, or I guess if it still somehow commences, would uh, focus uh, much more on the reasons for the selection uh, of the victim. Fred, one other question, and then I'll move on to the others on the panel and get their feelings on this. Um, is it how do you feel about the fact that there will now be no evidence introduced as to the bigotry of these uh, murderers? Well, I think what this demonstrates is that for a lot of folks, um, there's different aspects to what makes trials important. Uh, and you know, sentencing, uh, uh, a conviction, those are not the only things that folks sometimes care about. Uh, what's also important is the actual trial itself uh, and the kind of democratic moment, small d, democratic moment um, of, uh, of jurors hearing evidence of the broader public hearing evidence. Um, and here they would get to hear evidence about, uh, about the role that race played. And so uh, I think it, it seems that the family um, feels robbed of that particular moment. Well, and Audrey, I'll, weigh I'll... in on that. Well, I will um, voice uh, my opinion because I'm really not an expert in this area. But, you know, it's interesting to me that there is not um, the, the taking of an opportunity to have what is clearly um, a case that was meant to be applied to this law and to sort of set precedent for, you know, the subsequent use of it. You know, I mean, it's very clear. I can see the motiva motivation of um, the McMichaels. I mean, clearly this is, um, you know, self-interest because they, you know, find themselves to be in a very uncomfortable spot. And a state prison would probably be a very uncomfortable environment for them, given what they've done. Um, so I see their motivation. On the other hand, and I'm sure Amy would say this, in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cases don't go to trial anyhow. They're often the result of of plea bargain. So there is a natural inclination, I think, in most court systems to avoid costly trials. But here the balance is that that cost versus, you know, what is the potential of, you know, creating, um, you know, clear application in, in a trial and process of, of this law. And again, I say that so Amy a, I'm not an expert. I apologize for interrupting. So, Amy, um, we don't know. We, we will learn, apparently, at 10 o'clock uh, exactly what this plea arrangement calls for. We don't know. Are the McMichaels going to uh, stipulate that, yes, they targeted him because he was black? I mean, will there be any acknowledgement or admission on their part that that race played a role in their shooting and killing Ahmad Arbery? Um but one of the things that I thought about, and certainly weigh in on any of that, but one of the other things I thought about was when I saw that this had happened. You know, Travis McMichael on the stand presented a rather um, sanitized picture of who he is. He dressed nicely. He was soft-spoken. He was thoughtful. Um, he was convicted of murder, of course. And um, because that image of him may linger in people's minds, it feels like a sanitized version of a guy who may have acted, as some people have said, because he hates black people. Yes. I mean, so I think 
perhaps one thing we should focus on is that a plea deal doesn't mean that there's not precedent or that there's not an admission. I mean, what, what a plea deal means is that they're also stipulating, yes, we're guilty, right? I mean, they're saying, yes, we did this. You have uh, evidence against us. It is very possible that there will be a stipulation included in the plea deal where they have to sort of sign a statement or perhaps even give some sort of – we don't, we don't know what's going to come in there, but sometimes it does come along with a public statement, um, an acknowledgment of crime, an acknowledgment of that. We don't really know. Um, what we also don't know is that there is this speculation of being transferred to a federal prison, um, but Fred thankfully sent me uh, the Federal Bureau of Prison uh, statements, and so I was reading that really quickly. And the only way that that actually happens, because currently the state has primary jurisdiction over them. So the only way that they actually get transferred to a federal prison is if the state agrees to that. And the reason why the state might do that is that now means the federal government pays the cost of incarcerating them, right, for life, let's be clear still, um, as opposed to the state. Um, because right, they're they're serving up right, they're serving uh, life without the possibility of parole. But I do think it is sort of as as Fred was getting at, sort of more broadly, there is this question of sort of what is the purpose, right? Is the goal of the trial and the criminal justice system, for example, to sort of get the convictions, or is the goal sometimes about the public airing of misdeeds? to then be included with the kind of conclusion of, yes, there was something wrong. Of course, here's the other side of it, which I think we should also be very cognizant of. And I don't think this might happen, but it could. If it goes to trial, there's the possibility that they're acquitted, right? I mean, it's highly unlikely, especially because they're willing to plead guilty because they recognize the evidence is overwhelming. But there is sort of also that risk within it, which um, is not insignificant. Hey, uh, if, if uh, Bill, if I could offer, uh, to just ask Amy to, to, to follow up on this, and Fred, if, if you could weigh in on this too. Uh, again, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I'm assuming that federal prosecutors have spent months and months and months, maybe a, a better part of a year or so, building a case against the McMichaels. Now, is there a vehicle for, for getting that evidence out how do we uh, is is there is there is there an alternative to the public airing that a that a a a courtroom trial would provide so they could right i mean that could be part of what they do for example at the press conference today right is that they can sort of in the court of public opinion i guess right kind of discuss what the evidence is and what the things are um they could also again sort of have that be in the plea deal itself, that that is part of, let's say, the stipulation, right, that uh, McMichaels, that there's a series of things that they have to stipulate to, right? We did X or there's evidence of or proof of that. So I guess there, there are those ways to be able to kind of introduce it more sort of informally. And, and we'll see what's stipulated when the uh, a plea agreement is revealed in, in court, I assume. Um, uh, Fred, one last uh, comment on this from you. Uh, here's what Wanda Cooper-Jones, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's mother, uh, said about this. She said, quote, the DOJ 
has gone behind my back to offer the men who murdered my son a deal to make their time in prison easier for them to serve. I've made it clear at every possible moment I do not agree to offer these men a plea deal of any kind. And um, whether this is a an arrangement that makes sense or not, your heart has to go out to, to her once again in the ordeal that she's been going through, Fred. No, it absolutely does. I mean, it's one of those things where it's, I mean, you almost wonder why the feds are involved if the outcome is both uh, that there is no trial where there is kind of a, a public airing of this in that, at least in that setting, um, and where the murderers are going to uh, serve time in, um, in a less harsh place. Uh, and if the feds were not involved at all, then they would be serving time in a less harsh place. So it, it, it's, uh, it makes you question whether or not federal involvement in this case um, was at all helpful if this is the end result. Uh, and hearing that statement from the mother kind of reinforces that. Okay. Um, thank you all for that conversation. Uh, let's move on to another story that broke over the weekend that uh, is, 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 has great significance here in Georgia. Um, Audrey Haynes we learned that uh, the January 6th committee, the House committee, which is investigating the roots of the insurrection, has called, has subpoenaed uh, for documents and testimony from uh, people in seven states, including Georgia, who served as false electors, who created a slate of false Trump electors in those states that Joe Biden actually one here in Georgia, David Schaefer, the chairman of the state Republican Party, Amy, has been subpoenaed. So has the form another former officer of uh, the party. But we we talked about this just briefly the other day. Th- these are these are people who gathered in secret on the same day that the Biden electors were certifying the votes for Biden. Um, met secretly behind a closed door to create for themselves a slate of Trump electors, which they set off to the National Archives. And there are potential criminal charges that uh, 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 this action could lead to. Uh, Amy? I mean, Audrey? Yeah. Well, it it is interesting. And, you know, I want to put everything in context a bit. What they did was extremely something that is rare in politics. I mean, if you go back in history, and, you know, the first time we had to deal with this in an electoral situation was 1876, and that election was decided by one electoral vote. In fact, because that came up, and, of course, this was a Reconstruction issue, uh, it was a very uh, complicated uh, election with a lot of politics involved and a very polarized society, you know, What happened is they really didn't have anything to deal with it, so they created a commission, and the commission went through and um, figured out a way to process it. And that's really what gave us the law um, that, uh, you know, they're talking about right now, the Electoral Count uh, Act. And, you know, even in recent history, it is rare that states send in multiple slates. In fact, in like 1960, in a super close election with Richard Nixon, of all people, you know, taking the role that Pence did, He actually counted Hawaii, which sent in multiple slates. He counted the one against him. Mm -hmm. 
it wouldn't make any difference. So I preface it by that this is a super rare event. And even though people talk about, you know, um, you know, loopholes and things in the law, the law is very clear. It clearly states, if you read it, that, you know, if a, if a state, which you can look at what Governor Kemp did, if a state has uh, gone through and, you know, ascertained and, and finalized the entire process and sent it in, that's it. There is no incentive for them to do that. And in our case, a Republican governor, after audits and, you know, all kinds of double-checking, authorized a slate. The interesting thing, too, is remember, four people, you know, decided not to participate in that slate. They knew better. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jim, here's a statement from the January 6th committee about David Schaefer and the others who have been subpoenaed to both submit documents and then testify. We believe the individuals we have subpoenaed have information about how these so-called alternate electors met and who was behind the scheme. We encourage them to cooperate with select committee's investigation to get answers about January 6th for the American people and help ensure nothing like that day ever happens again. Jim? Yeah, and I, I don't think we've gotten a, a, uh, a an answer from Mr. Schaefer or the, uh, the, the other Georgian who's been uh, subpoenaed. And it's um, if if I'm not mistaken, the 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 secret meeting, uh, which occurred, by the way, at the, at the very same time that that Democrats were were formally voting uh, voting for their own electors, uh, their 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 the legit legitimate electors, I, the meeting itself, the Republican meeting itself, I, I probably was not illegal. It was the communication. The, the alleged communications, the purporting to be uh, the 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 official uh, the official electors that was com- uh, formally communicated to the federal government. I think that's where that's where the 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 the, the liability for for Mr. Schaefer and others lie. Uh, it, it's, but but to me, what what's very clear about this is they're targeting Mr. Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, mm-hmm. who appears to have been the, the 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 fellow to to organize this movement. If you'll recall, uh, 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 immediately I think I think this election was December fourteenth or fifteenth. Uh, immediately after that, Giuliani was at a pair of uh, legislative hearings where he kind of uh, put out his case. Uh, and, and uh, of course, Republican senators uh, did not, uh, and, and House members did not allow much uh, testimony against that. Yeah, uh, Fred, we're, we're going to have to look to see. We've had people subpoenaed by the committee, Trump allies subpoenaed by the com- committee, who refused to respond to the subpoenas. As Jim points out, to the best of our knowledge, we've heard nothing from uh, uh, Schaefer as to how he'll respond to this. Um, but this just is going to carry us into the months before the primary elections, uh, the perpetuation of the big lie, Fred. Sure. I mean, this is, I mean, all, the longer that this um, conversation goes on around really in particular whether or not the election was legitimate at all, um, you know, kind of yeah, the more that certainly is going to um, inform Georgia's uh, political process. Um, and, you know, I mean, last night, President Trump put out yet another statement, kind of really in some of the strongest terms yet, uh, uh, accusing um, Vice President uh, uh, Pence of changing the results of the election, for example. Um, and, so the, 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 and so that overheated rhetoric, I mean, some of us hear it and we're like, that's ridiculous. That's incompatible with the facts. Um, but 
uh, you know, he's the former president of the United States for whom a lot of people put their trust. Um, and, uh, and it kind of reinforces because people don't want to believe that the person they voted for, who they believe, who, uh, who they have believed in for so, so long that they would, that he would lie to them about something so uh, important. Um, and that's informing um, our politics. That this is, this is not where Brian Kemp, for example, um, wants to be, and it's not what he wants to be talking about at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Amy, uh, um, we're going to talk, we're not going to talk much about this Trump rally in, in Texas last night, which was rich with more uh, rather outrageous statements from the former president, including his saying, uh, as Jim Galloway just pointed out to me, uh, if he's re- if he's reelected, he would probably grant pardons to the people who've been arrested in the January 6th insurrection. But um, why don't you go ahead and give us a final thought on this before we move on? So I think the problem is it's sort of threefold. Um, As Fred noted, one of the things it does is it now makes once again uh, one of the top issues in the Republican primary, and especially the gubernatorial primary, this question of whether or not the election was free and fair and whether or not, in fact, Trump won and there was some sort of nefarious happening in the state of Georgia about what was going on. Um, I think second, it uh, brings into sort of more broadly of to what degree this is going to be overarching the 2022 elections and how that's going to affect uh, the way that people are interpreting it. And also the question of whether or not that's going to cause them, in fact, to not turn out to vote, which is one of the things that we saw happen in the runoff election, because people, uh, why would you go vote if you think that the system is completely rigged and isn't operating correctly? Um, but I think third, it also causes us to again be having these that we we are sort of set in this weird thing of that there appears to be a um tension between the idea of sort of access to voting and preserving the right to vote and the question of what that means for uh electoral integrity and it's an interesting one especially because at least to those on the outside they're kind of flexible. Um, one of the things I, I know, I've mentioned this, that I was really struck by was how many reporters from other countries kept asking me, I don't understand, right? Isn't voting mandatory? Isn't it that, right, you do everything you can to make sure you vote? Can you explain this to me of where it comes? And when it's put in that way, it does make it difficult to kind of explain why we seem to have a view, especially as kind of the beacon of democracy up on the hill, that is very different from how other countries have interpreted what that means. Okay, got to get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with a lot more after these messages. Fred Smith, Audrey Haynes, Amy Steigerwald, Jim Galloway joined me today for Political Rewind. Of course, we've known for a few days now that after an almost 28-year career on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer uh, one of the ever-shrinking uh, liberals uh, uh, wing of the court uh, will leave at the end of this session. And I want to talk a bit about his career, particularly in terms of a few cases that stand out as being really important in terms of where the court's headed in the weeks and months ahead as well. But, you know, um, Jim Galloway, I, here's an interesting fact about Stephen Breyer, I think. 
Um, and, and I guess many people don't realize that Breyer actually was um, interviewed twice to become a justice. He first went to see Bill Clinton uh, during an opening at, what, in 93? I may have that year wrong. He, had, he apparently had a really bad interview with Clinton. He'd been in an accident. His bicycle had been hit by a car. He went in. He wasn't feeling great. And uh, Clinton came away from the interview and said, nope, I'm going to nominate R Ruth Bader Ginsburg instead, which turned out to be a pretty remarkable choice for the court. And it was only on his second uh, try about a year later that Breyer successfully uh, uh, made the point to or made it clear uh, from Bill Clinton's point of view that he'd be uh, a, a good nominee for the court. He was approved by margins we just don't see anymore. Eighty seven to nine, uh, Jim. And again, almost 28 years on the court. And, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time was Joe Biden. And, yeah. and 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 which and there was so there was a very interesting bookend last week when 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 Breyer came to the White House uh, to to formally hand, hand his resignation to the president uh, and 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 out of you know I found that I, I found his remarks refreshing and kind of delightful in that there, there's there's part of Breyer has always been he, he's never left the classroom in a way he's he's always been kind of the teacher he, and, he, and he referenced his the, the enjoyment he, he got from still speaking with high school students or college students or even law students uh, and I was just most I, I was most impressed that he went back to the Gettysburg Address um, and to the to, to, to Lincoln's remark that 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 democracy in the United States is not guaranteed that it's a that it's a very fragile thing that that must be kept up uh, Fred Amy Howe, uh, who, of course, writes, um, among other publications, for SCOTUS blog, which is a one, by the way, if people out there don't follow SCOTUS blog, when there are important cases before the court, it's really a wonderful source of information, and, and Amy Howe is, is terrific. Um, here's what she said, uh, Fred. Breyer shunned rigid approaches to legal interpretation, often seeking functional rulings with an eye toward real-world consequences. <laughs> He wrote major opinions favoring abortion rights, demarcating the separation of powers, turning back a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. In his later years, he questioned the constitutionality of the death penalty. And, um, and, and I think it's particularly interesting uh, the way he, uh, he formed his opinions on abortion law, considering we're seeing uh, that in the months ahead, the court could overturn Roe entirely. Fred, your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's so much there. Uh, I mean, I, I would say, yes, he uh, is someone who I agree with really kind of all of those observations. Um, he, is, he did take a very functionalist uh, approach uh, to law, including to constitutional law. Um, he and he liked to kind of explain uh, uh, his his reasoning in those terms. And so, you know, one mark sometimes of a Justice Breyer opinion is that he would go through it first, second, third, fourth, fifth, um, and uh, it, so you kind of understood each piece uh, of how uh, he ultimately reached uh, his conclusion. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, I think one of his most memorable dissents will probably be in a, parent, a, a case called Parents Involved. Uh, which uh, was a case 
about whether or not in the K through 12 educational context, whether schools could voluntarily integrate. That is, could they, when they're drawing lines and assigning students to schools, could they intentionally make sure that their schools uh, were integrated? Um, and uh, the Supreme Court, uh, in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, ruled that, um, that that violates the Equal Protection Clause because it's considering race when you're assigning it by intentionally integrating, you're considering race. Um, and uh, he wrote a really remarkable defense um, that, uh, that kind of drew um, not only on questions of, of kind of anti-subordination and the role of caste in, in American history, but also uh, he leaned very much into uh, democracy. Um, and uh, and it, it's, uh, it kind of, it's unusual in a Justice Breyer opinion. It doesn't have that same kind of, well, first, second, third. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, a, a full-throated um, defense uh, of democracy and anti-subordination. Uh, Amy, I, we're gonna, we'll talk about his view on abortion in a moment uh, because it deserves a, a deeper look. But, but I'd like to ask you, he, Breyer also had an interesting perspective in various cases that related to religion in the public square. Uh, so, for instance, he, he sat on the bench as a Texas case uh, came before the court that involved the Ten Commandments in a public space in a courthouse, I believe, um, and he ended up ruling that it was it was legal, it was constitutional that the Ten Commandments be in that location because they'd been there for some 40 or so years. They were not an expression, he said, of religious belief, but rather were an expression of the underpinnings of morality and ethics. And then he turned around and he uh, uh, said that a Tennessee Ten Commandments display was illegal uh, because it didn't have its roots in a historical presence, and it really was an effort, I think I'm saying it correctly, at uh, promoting uh, religion. So he was really fascinating in, uh, in, in his uh, ability to uh, look at issues from uh, many sides. Definitely, and I think the Establishment Clause cases in particular sort of show that at sort of his core, he was... Uh, people use the term pragmatist, but it really was, right? He wanted to think about what was sort of the practical application and how was it going to affect people. And he, with Establishment Clause cases, sort of reiterated many times that it was about not making religion divisive. And so what we saw, for example, in the case where the Ten Commandments were on uh, the Capitol grounds and had been there for a really long time without anybody sort of ever objecting. Um, he reached a similar decision in the case about the World War I uh, cross memorial that's in the center of D.C. that it had been there for almost 100 years, right? This idea that it would seem as though we were taking sides against religion to really rule in that one, as opposed to one of the things about the Kentucky case that was important about it is that it was, in fact, put up very recently. Um, it was also done by a judge who was censured quite a few times, even by the state courts, um, for bringing in things that he should not into his decisions. And so Breyer was really able to kind of distinguish between them and say, hey, right, we, it's not about a firm rule, because on some level, it really is about the facts of the case that give us kind of the insights about what is going on here. Um, and that really stretched through through a lot of his. He was also, I mean, I always thought that one of the most important statements that he ever sort of publicly made was when uh, 
he said it was sort of a lesson he had learned from Ted Kennedy, who he had worked for when he was on this. Uh, he was a staffer, actually, originally for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he said that if you have the choice between winning sort of 20 or 30 percent or having everybody dislike you, you take the 20 or 30 percent. And so there's a lot of stories of him sort of brokering these again, kind of pragmatic compromises on the court to try to get to something which may not be perfect, but it sort of made it perhaps less worse than it could have been if, if sides had to their extremes. Um, so, uh, uh, Audrey, uh, he will sit on the court uh, and be part of the, the discussions about whether or not uh, Roe v. Wade uh, should continue to be the law of the land. Uh, they heard the Mississippi case on this. Um, he was in the minority uh, with uh, uh, his liberal fellow, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, in which he uh, said that the Mississippi law, which bans abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy, uh, should uh, should not be allowed to stay in place. He believed that um, it, it is not the role of the court uh, to go back and look at previous decisions and decide to overturn them, in this case, Roe v. Wade, stare decisis. Um, but he'll have a role to play as the court decides what Mississippi's ultimate question is, which is we want Roe outlawed completely, they're arguing. Right. And, you know, I think that probably was a um, part of the reasoning where he was sticking around for that period of time and probably one of the reasons uh, among many that Biden's office was not pressuring him uh, too much earlier. Um, but I will say that it, it is a sad day when justices like Breyer um, do leave the bench because, you know, they have uh, taken on a role in, in leadership, particularly in a polarized time. And, you know, one of the things that scholars who study polarization have been saying is that we've been waiting for polarization to creep into the court. You know, that last bastion of sort of making um, and, and politics has always played a role. But the likelihood is that it will, if things continue the way they are, become increasingly more visible. And that's problematic. And, you know, we were talking about some of the earlier uh, discussions with um uh, the activity with, um, you know, the uh, uh, electoral systems, all of these things play into this sort of national delusion that we're suffering under and polarization. And, you know, most people aren't even hearing about um, Justice Breyer and the cases. So many people are only hearing about, you know, one side or the other. And that discussion is very limited. So, you know, I worry well, about that and other things. Yeah. That's another reason I wanted to mention, uh, have a little bit longer talk about him because of that, because he was a pragmatist who looked for solutions, not not uh, taglines, as it were. All right. So, Fred, I'm going to get to a break and we'll come back and talk about the politics of uh, the nominating process. Before I do, Fred, I realize I dance around some of this constitutional stuff because I'm certainly no expert. So before we leave... Have I basically got it right in terms of where Breyer stood on the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yes, uh, absolutely. And on him as a pragmatist and an institutionalist. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's go get to our final break of the show, and when we come back, we'll talk about President Biden's uh, decision on who to nominate to replace Justice Breyer. 
Jim Galloway, uh, there are some ways in which replacing Justice Breyer may not be quite the uh, rocky road that we've seen in other uh, recent uh, nominating processes, in part because it's not going to change the balance of the court. Um, You know, we're not going to see any concern about a swing of conservative to liberal. Um, and, and, And so it's interesting that despite that, uh, right now, there the Republicans are really being critical of President Biden because he made it clear that he was going to honor a pledge he made during his campaign to nominate the first African-American woman to be on the court. Sandra Day O'Connor, Ronald Reagan said he was going to appoint a woman, chose Sandra Day O'Connor. Donald Trump said he'd replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a woman, uh, Justice Barrett. Uh, but Republicans are saying they're calling the, this the affirmative action uh, nomination, Jim. Right, right. And, and in addition to, to Reagan uh, promising to, to put a woman on, on the bench, you had uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, uh, replace, replacing Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 uh, it's been done by both parties. Uh, What's interesting is to me is that uh, I think one reason we just finished with one reason why I think Republicans will probably stand down on this nomination is they don't want to go into this election cycle with a focus on abortion, and that's and and if there's a if if there's a fight over this this whoever uh, Biden nominates, abortion is likely to be at the center of that fight, uh, and 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 the optics of that. Would, uh, would 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 clearly energize the Democratic side. Uh, I think we saw some some movement this weekend. <clears throat> the, the 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 pre-primary candidates, so far as I can tell, are, are Michelle Childs out of South Carolina, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. She's already been confirmed to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals, and then you have uh, Leonda Kruger uh, on the California Supreme Court. I would say those first two. Are probably the best bets for Biden if he wants a speedy process. Uh, you know, uh, Jackson, of course, has already been confirmed. Uh, Michelle Childs, I think, is really interesting uh, because number she she's a working class. She comes from a working class family. Uh, she came up through kind of the, the the ranks you don't normally see on the Supreme Court. She's she she didn't come through through Harvard or Yale, uh, and she has the backing of not just Clyburn, but but uh, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, uh, Republicans in the U.S. Senate, and and possibly more. So so you could get that bipartisan uh, that that bipartisan vote uh, with her. Yeah, we, uh, uh, Amy, uh, we, we know that uh, that Congressman Clyburn, in giving his nod to Joe Biden before the South Carolina primary, which turned uh, uh, Biden's campaign around, it it suddenly made him the front runner. Um, uh, he wanted that commitment. Uh, he said to to Biden, "If you uh, promise to nominate an African American woman, it's gonna it's gonna be a big uh, step in the right direction for your." campaign. So that's, you know, and we'll see how he responds to uh, Michelle Childs. But but in general, you can't take the politics 
out of the process of nominating and confirming a justice, and you've certainly written about uh, uh, nominating processes in the lower federal courts. You certainly can't. So just our presidents are always facing a question of what it is they want to do and how it is they want to approach it. And the reality is that there are a lot of similarities. Um, Reagan, actually, back in October of 1980, uh, gave a speech in which he said, quote, that one of the that he would name a woman to one of the first vacancies in my administration. This was before we had one that was open. Uh, he also said that he would look for more women to be able to appoint to the federal bench because he wanted to bring balance. And in part, he was reacting to uh, a lot of polls that showed that he was not doing well among women voters and that there was a lot of pushback of his view on uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, because that was at the time facing and there were certain uh, voters there. And so this has sort of always been an issue and we've seen it play out in uh, different ways as we've tried to make the court somewhat reflect a bit more what the um, realities of the country are and where that goes. And I think it is also as we've sort of seen this move, um, what most people don't realize is that, right, I mean, we obviously had segregation in um, right schools, and we focus a lot on sort of Graham versus Board of Education, but that was obviously true in a lot of the law schools as well. Um, we did not see, uh, there basically were no uh, possibilities even uh, really to be able to have lawyers that were going to be appointed to the federal bench. Um, there were very few of them that would meet the criteria that the American Bar Association had set out in the 1970s. And so that was one of the things that happened under Jimmy Carter is he really pushed them to change kind of their determination of what made someone, quote unquote, qualified because they're technically due to who could be admitted to a law school were, in fact, no women or people of color who could meet the minimum guidelines of 10 years. And so. This is sort of what we're seeing going forward, and it's really an expression of this idea. I think what, what is most difficult is the concern that there are, in fact, lots of people who are qualified to sit on the Supreme Court, but we have also sort of always presumed that a white male is going to have those qualifications, but yet we put an asterisk next to it when – uh, equally qualified, if not honestly more qualified, women and people of color are nominated. Fred? Yeah, no, it is remarkable. I mean, I remember when Justice Sotomayor was nominated, and there was no judge her age in the federal bench who had more experience than she did. Federal district court judge, court, federal court of appeals judge, she had it. Former prosecutor, she had it. Former partner in a law firm, she had it. Number one in a class at Princeton, she had it. Editor of the Yale Law Journal, she had it. And people said affirmative action, right? Uh, it, 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 some did. And, uh, you know, and so we're, we're, you know, Biden in some ways has kind of opened the door to, uh, to that same charge here before we even have a nominee. Um, and uh, one could argue that that was a bit sloppy. Um, but the reality is that no matter what, if someone were trying to, you know, kind of from the age range that one generally draws from, um, look for the best most qualified folks out there. There is no list that wouldn't have Tataji Brown Jackson on it, who's on the second highest court in the land, which is where uh, these, uh, these judges typically come from. Uh, and the same case could be made for Leandra Kruger, who successfully argued 
cases before the Supreme Court on a regular basis when she was in her 30s. <laughs> okay, like these are not, I mean, th- 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 these are the people, no matter how you drew the list, who would be interviewed for this position. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that's how we should be thinking about them. And they are uh, among the most gifted, hardworking individuals in America. Uh, and uh, they're, they are clearly ready to be Supreme Court justices. Audrey, we obviously have to make the point that this nominating process is going to play out as the elections really uh, start building up enormous momentum, and there's no way to escape the impact they will have on uh, the election cycle. Yes, uh, and um, before we start, I, I would just add that you know it's about time. It's uh, it's a thing to celebrate, and I think that you know most Americans um, from whatever background should celebrate the fact that. You know, we're actually living up to our principles a bit more by um, having uh, qualified individuals like these women, uh, you know, um, teed up for their their role in the Supreme Court. But, yeah, the campaigns, that's what we're talking about. You know, one of the things is, you know, I was really surprised, uh, but not surprised when uh, a member of the U.S. Senate used the word, quote, as an affirmative action in this case, rather than making a statement regarding, you know, Qualified women will do all the process, keep it very neutral. Because, again, we keep hearing more rhetoric. And I'm a little bit concerned that that rhetoric is, again, turning into, um, you know, uh, more racial overtones, more otherisms, more division, uh, uh, particularly, um, you know, in, in recent days. And I'm not sure that bodes well for the Republican Party. You know, this is, uh, again, in every aspect, a very base election oriented. And I use base with a little bit of double entendre there. Uh, Some of these issues and ideas that they're running on are just not very positive. You know, um, Jim, it does strike me that uh, Biden nominates an African-American woman. It has the potential to build back some of his lost uh, momentum among African Americans, which is something apparently the White House cares about. I mean, they do care about. We know that, and it also doesn't serve Republicans particularly well to continue attacking a process in which an African American woman is going to be uh, the nominee, um, unless they've decided they just want to play to the white base. No, and, and and I think you're going to see a division in in, in congressional Republicans. You're going to, you're going to have uh, members of say the House Freedom Caucus and and their and their like-minded people in in the in the Senate go in that direction. But I think you're going to see uh, Mitch McConnell and 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 a certain coterie of of, of Senate Republicans kind of uh, at least express support for the process that they invented, uh, the quick one. Okay. I, you know what? I want to talk about this for another half hour. I've got such a great panel of people to do it, but we are completely out of time for today's political rewind. You know what? The nominating process will unfold. There will be hearings. We'll invite you all back, and we'll continue this conversation as the process unfolds. Thank you, Amy Steigerwald, Audrey Haynes, Fred Smith, Jim Galloway, for being with us for today. Thank all of you out there for being with us. We'll be back with a brand-new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, and get a booster if you haven't. There are far too few people, apparently, who've gotten their booster shot. So what are you waiting for? Take care, everybody.